Hello and welcome to the PHBC Pastors Podcast, where we seek to bring biblical and pastoral insight to everyday issues for the people of PHBC. I'm Brian. No, 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 no. I'm Brian. There it is. Today, we are going to start a two-part discussion on how we as Christians are to approach the difficult passages of Scripture. So we know we should read the Bible, we know it's the Word of God, and yet there are some passages that, at least for me, make me scratch my head. What am I supposed to do with this? How does this apply to my life? What was the author thinking when he wrote this down? So to, to tackle these passages, I want to start big picture, and then we'll go over a few particular examples of challenging passages. So, Pastor Brian, to get us started, what are some overarching principles we should keep in mind just whenever we read from Scripture? So when we're reading from Scripture, um, and it's a difficult passage, one of the very first things that we do well to remember is that if we have a problem with the Scripture, the problem doesn't lie with the Scripture, rather it lies with us. So God is a good communicator. He knows what He's saying. He knows how to say it. And so when we misunderstand something or when we just can't understand something, the problem is lying with us. Uh, so sometimes, it, you know, we're not listening well. Maybe uh, that means uh, the passage might be rather clear. We just don't like what it's having to say. Mm. And so we uh, say, I just don't understand why this is happening, even though the passage is just plainly clear. Um, other times it might be that uh, we're not listening well because we come to the Bible all with, with our minds already made up. We have preconceived notions about, well, what this must mean. And so, therefore, uh, we, don't, we don't come to the Bible seeking to understand it. Rather, we come seeking to impose our will on the Bible rather than to sit under the Bible. Um, and yet, even at other times, we don't listen well to the Bible because, frankly, we're not familiar enough with the grand narrative of Scripture. We don't know Scripture well enough. And so, we come then to the Bible and we, um, we don't understand the context um, of scripture and so we come to a particular passage and it's difficult to understand that passage because we don't understand where it fits in the grand narrative and so we have to remember so in real estate location 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 in reading your bible context 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 and so context is king it is the most important thing for us to remember and so we we need to remember the context of what we're reading so uh, unpack that. So you, you've said this from the pulpit a number of times, the emphasis on context. So what is context? Can you give us just a, the, the most accessible definition, maybe an example of using context, just so we can really make sure we wrap our heads around what this important component of reading the Bible is? So, um, so it starts by understanding that the, that the smallest unit of understanding isn't a word, for example. Um, and so words don't have meaning singular. They typically have meanings plural. And so we might run across a single word that could mean a number of other things, but when we look at it within the context of the sentence in which it's located, and then with the context of the paragraph, and then as we keep going outward, we begin to get a greater understanding of what a word means. And so, for example, a very common example would be the word board, B-O-A-R-D. Um, could mean a number of things. It could mean a piece of board that I'm cutting. It could mean uh, like I'm the chairman of the board or something of that nature or, or all aboard or what have you. They, they could mean different things. 
um, depending on how how, con where the, how they fit in the context. Um, also important to remember is that there are, um, you know, sometimes things are written in a different genre or a different type of literature. Um, so we wouldn't read a poem, for example, the same way we would read uh, the front page of the New York Times. Those would be uh, two different genres of writing, and so we need to understand the genre when we come to a text. And the Bible is filled with lots of different genres. There's prophecy, there's poetry, there is um, there is history, um, there is apocalyptic literature. Uh, so there's any number of genres in the Bible. And so just just like a newspaper, any any newspaper is going to have different genres within the newspaper. You have your comic section. Uh, which is my personal favorite, then you want to read the comics. And then you have things like, uh, um, you have the hard news stories, if you will, the objective news stories, you know, just the facts to give you this is what's happening in the news. And then you have things called editorials. Well, those are three different genres that appear within a newspaper, and we would do well to remember we read those different genres different ways. And so, um, and so the context of the genre also then plays into how we understand the Bible. That's helpful. Uh, when I was in seminary, I had multiple professors talk about reading the Bible um, through a series of, of horizons is the language that they use. It was their effort to communicate what you just did about context. And so you have the, the textual horizon, which is the immediate context. So what is going on in and around your particular passage in that particular book, the here and the now. And then they use a fancy term, epochal horizon, which just means what has already happened in, as you said, the grand storyline of the Bible leading up to it. So unless you're on page one in Genesis one, something else has already taken place that's going to inform and shape what you're reading. So understand what has come before is helpful. And then the, the final horizon is the, the canonical horizon the, for the whole Bible. And so that's not just looking back at what's come before, but looking forward at what is to come ahead, specifically looking forward to Christ, uh, because you just cannot read the Bible without looking to Christ, without finding Jesus as he is the Word of God incarnate. He is the ultimate point of the entire scripture, and so we want to always be on the lookout for how our passage connects to him. So any other kind of big picture uh, principles that we want to keep in mind when it comes to reading God's Word? No, it sounds like you had good professors in seminary. I enjoyed it and I'm grateful for them. Um, so for, for today, I want to take two uh, particular passages or themes in the Bible that, that I struggle with at times that I know others do as well. And then for, for part two, we'll look at a few other ones. So the first, genealogies. So these are all over the Bible. You've got Jesus's genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Genesis, in, in many ways, is a book of genealogies. And you've got Numbers and the Chronicles. I mean, genealogies are, are everywhere. So what should I do when I'm reading through my Bible and then, bam, a whole list of names that I've never heard. I've got no idea how to pronounce. What do I do with genealogies? You just skip it and come back to it later. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, just mess with you. Um, well, the first thing you do when you come across a genealogy is you thank God for it. You praise God for it because, um, among other things, these genealogies, they show us that God is intimately concerned with individuals. Um, these are individuals, flesh and blood people, made in the image of God, and he cares about individuals. 
And so we thank God that um, in the same way he cares about those individuals, he cares about us. Um, but secondly, you can also thank God for those genealogies uh, because they also they help us and they show us the fulfillment of promises, the fulfillment of Scripture. Uh, you mentioned earlier the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. Well, um, we know, again, reading the Bible in context, we know from 1 Samuel, uh, I believe chapter 7, we know that the Messiah would be one who came from David's lineage, King David. So it would be one of King David's sons, not directly from David, but a descendant, a son of David, uh, would be the Messiah. And lo and behold, we find out in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus that Jesus, in fact, is a son of David. And so Jesus, if you will, you can check that box that he fulfills that prophecy. And so the genealogy helps us to see the fulfillment of Scripture. We do need to be careful, however, with genealogies. Sometimes we get in trouble with genealogies. Uh, perhaps, at least in my mind, one of the more common um, or perhaps one of the most famous um, mistakes in a genealogy was made by a guy named James Usher back in the 17th century. He was an archbishop in um, Ireland and he started, he, he thought every genealogy in the Bible was a complete genealogy. It was like, you know, a father, or excuse me, a grandfather to a father to a son to a grandson to a great-grandson and there, wasn't, there weren't any generations, if you will, missed. And so then he said, well then if I just start counting backwards, and I can, I can find out when the earth was formed. You know, I can go all the way back and find to, to Adam and Eve, and I know now I can put a date on when God created the earth. Well, um, nice try, um, Usher, but that's not the way it works. The genealogies, we can, we can show this from Scripture when we compare genealogies, that there's, they're not intended to be uh, complete genealogies. They're, tending, they're, they're true genealogies. They're faith-worthy. Uh, uh, faithful gene genealogies, but they're not complete genealogies. And so they tend to, they describe an ancestry, but they don't describe every ancestor in that ancestry. And so we do need to be careful when we read genealogies. I think that's really helpful in helping us get kind of behind the scene and see what the author was intending when he wrote down that genealogy. We want to think very scientifically and directly, and so one to one to one, but knowing that, you know, really stories are being told and points are being made more than just a listing of names. So that's that's really good. One other thing I found helpful with genealogies, uh, this phrase is not... Uh, unique to me, um, but looking for glimmers of grace. So as you're reading through this list of names, um, to, to be on the lookout for the ones that you do recognize and the ones that stand out to you. Be, oh, I know that person's story. Just to, to be able to make those connections and that helps frame kind of where you're at in the timeline. But then also... Well, in that's super helpful with the genealogy of Jesus. For example, with uh, you know every woman that's listed mm -hmm. in the genealogy of Jesus has a, um, has a history of some type of uh, sexual question mark, if you will. One was a prostitute, one was, uh, well, his mother, a uh, uh, mother out of wedlock, and all of them, and, but yet you see God using these individuals for his glory and for his grace. And so that would be a, a wonderful example of the glimmer of grace. No, that's, that's great. And then in the midst, in between those glimmers of grace, so to speak, you just have ordinary faithfulness and praise God for ordinary faithfulness. Those individuals who we might know nothing about other than their name and the fact that they carried on the Davidic line leading to Jesus or the nation of Israel growing into the promised land. And so 
as a reminder for us to be thankful and to praise God for just ordinary faithfulness. Um, not flashy, not known, not the stars, but just the everyday faithfulness of the people of God. Um, so hopefully that's helpful as far as genealogies go. And then just for the sake of time, one more for today. Um, so a specific passage to, to get us started. Ephesians 6 verse 5. Slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. So this is not the only passage that discusses slavery in the Bible, um, but focusing specifically on, on the New Testament, what do we do about slavery in the word of God? Well, first, um, as 21st century Americans who are familiar with American history, English history, uh, we are familiar then with what was called chattel slavery. Uh, so people being enslaved simply because of the color of their skin. Um, and so we instinctively, when we hear the word slave, we instinctively think to that type of slavery. Uh, New Testament slavery was categorically different from that, sl that type of slavery. Now, I, I'm not meaning to paint a picture that it was wonderful in biblical times to be a slave. And, you know, you, well, wouldn't you just want to be a slave during that time? That's not at all uh, what we're saying, but they, they are categorically different. And so without getting too technical into the issue, a, a better way to understand New Testament slavery would probably be, um, again, using some historical reference here, would be what would, what would have been called indentured servitude. Uh, so an indentured servant, servant would have been one who was able to work toward his own freedom. Uh, so, in fact, the Apostle Paul uh, speaks in the scriptures about, you know, if you have an, to the slaves, if you have an opportunity to pursue freedom, by all means do so. That's, it's, you know, he, he holds that out as a, as a good thing for them to do. And so biblical slaves would have um, often uh, been indentured servant type of slaves. They would have often had their own property to manage, uh, their own families. And so this is, this is an example where, where if we're not careful, we can come to the scripture and we can read things back into the scripture that were never intended to be there. And so again, what we do is we read back um, our understanding of chattel slavery here in North America and in England, and we read that back into the scripture when that's not at all what was intended. That's good. And scripture does speak to not just slaves, but masters as well, whether it's Paul in Ephesians or the entire letter of Philemon, um, that there are standards. And so here's where I, I like to apply the, the principle of allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so not just taking these kind of one-off verses that focus in on, on the slave side of slavery, but including also the strong words that Paul has for masters, and then just the biblical principles as a whole of Every person, regardless of gender or skin color or economic status or anything, is made in the image of God. We are to love others as we love ourselves, and that in Christ there is no more of these societal distinctions, slave, free, Jew, Greek, man, woman. We are all one in Christ. And so just allowing the rest of Scripture to speak kind of these more significant principles into the specific institution of slavery, I find a helpful... Uh, uh, approach. Other words on this subject, Pastor Brian? 
Nothing at all. All right. Well, we will pick back up next week uh, for part two of the challenging passages of Scripture. Um, If at the end of this there are other passages that you would like us to discuss or other themes in general that you would be served by, we are here for you. So by all means, let us know. But for now, this has been the PHBC Pastors Podcast.